I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need. And get 10% off with the code, all caps, FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10 to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. All right, all you anti-heroes out there, welcome back to the journey. I've got another one of the Q5 podcasts slated for you today, and I'm real excited to be joined by my new friend, Cole Butler. Cole is the founder of Lionheart Wellness, where he serves as an addiction counselor candidate and ketamine therapist for addiction. He has extensive experience working in the psychedelic clinical trial space. He writes about issues in the field of psychedelics and the evolving paradigm of mental health and wellness. Cole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So we're going to get things rolling here. I've got my five favorite questions that I like to ask in preparatory sessions for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy medicine sessions. And the first one of those questions is, what is your story? Yeah, thanks, Doc. Well, I think my my origin is integral to to my story and who I am. So I like to think about myself as a small town boy from Arkansas, <laughs> but uh, I live in Colorado now. So I was born and raised in Hot Springs, Arkansas. It's not the smallest town ever. It's about 30, 40,000 people, but the state is only about 3 million. So it's definitely in the South. Yeah, I grew up in this town that was kind of a retirement community, you could say, but really because it was so beautiful. A lot of the things that people don't understand about Arkansas is that it's the natural state and it's called that for a reason because of its natural beauty. So we had several lakes and some awesome hikes, some very tiny mountains compared to the ones in Colorado. But, you know, it was a really beautiful environment to grow up in, but really the only industry that was there was tourism because, you know, that's that's why people came. So growing up as a young person in Arkansas, I was fortunate to be involved in a local music and art scene. But other than that, you know, as teenagers and stuff, we just had to come up with our own things to do, basically, because there wasn't a lot for us and for a lot of young people coming up in that area, there wasn't a lot of opportunities. So that really framed a lot of my life early on. I was kind of desperate to to get out and to immerse myself in the broader world, but I felt stifled by what was available to me. And 
because of the lack of opportunity, a lot of people turn to to drug use and a lot of people end up addicted and hurt. And I was kind of surrounded by a lot of that. I also had a lot of it in my family. So interestingly enough, like I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. I grew up building things, a lot of just kind of small mechanical toys, things with motors and batteries and switches and fan blades and eventually got into cars. So racing and building 90s Japanese cars mostly was what I was into. And I look at it like I didn't really ever fit into the box of possible careers that the world offers, you know. They hand you a script and it's like you can be a, you know, nurse, a doctor, an engineer, a writer. And like none of those things quite fit for me. But again, just being from small town Arkansas, I got a lot of this narrative of, uh, you know, the world needs more engineers. My grandpa always told me that. And so skipping ahead a little bit, when I got to engineering school, I was like, there's hundreds of us. We don't need more and more. Anyway, but when I was about 20, I had an experience actually on LSD, and I've gotten into it on another podcast. I won't tell the whole story, but it really catalyzed a big shift for me and made me realize that I wanted to be a counselor. And it was an experience involving a lot of drug use and kind of tragedy and trauma and violence. Somebody died and a drug deal gone wrong and an acquaintance of mine was put in jail, still in jail, for shooting two people. And just over weed, it was really a tragedy. Anyway, just before the shooting occurred, I had this crazy LSD experience and kind of everything came together, me kind of having this questioning around engineering and whether or not that was my life path. And I realized that, you know, I really wanted to help people and that I was and am a really compassionate person. And I kind of didn't always understand that or how to kind of utilize that energy. I wasn't really comfortable in my own skin in that way, I guess you could say. So I switched my major to psychology uh, after two and a half years of being in engineering school. I was at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville and decided to kind of try for the clinical psychology PhD. Found out that, you know, (laughs) well, I didn't find out until I was a senior, again, just not being exposed to a lot of the world, that I needed research experience. Uh, If I wanted to get into a PhD program and I learned about how competitive they are and really I just wanted to like be the best clinician I could possibly be and kind of reach for the highest ideal that I could. So that sent me on a path to discovering and understanding research and so I got pretty deeply involved in research. I joined three different research labs in my final year of my undergrad. And then after my undergrad, I worked a few jobs as a server. I also worked at a climbing gym. And then I was a lab manager of a clinical psychology lab. That lab manager job also led into a job at the University of Maryland at College Park. And I became a 
research coordinator on a clinical trial, and it examined ADHD in children and families, so a parent and child dyad pair. And we tested a combination of Adderall for the parent and a behavioral parent training, like evidence-based treatment protocol for basically the child's ADHD as the primary outcome. And we tested that against just the behavioral parent training. So one group got Adderall and the behavioral parent training intervention, and the other group didn't get the Adderall, just the therapy. And I worked on that project for a year that kind of coalesced with COVID. And so I was moving around a lot, working remotely some, and it took a really long time to get the project off the ground because we had to re-gear some things. Anyway, so I lived in Silver Spring, Maryland, just north of D.C., and then I came back to Arkansas for a little while. I lived in Destin, Florida, and then moved back up to Washington, D.C., right before the Trump-Biden re-election, which was just a crazy time. And unfortunately, uh, just due to a lot of financial pressure and systemic issues, I had to leave that job just because I was being mistreated. And so I came back to Arkansas and was just kind of trying to like make sense of all the craziness that I had experienced and how to get back on kind of my career path. So I applied to about 30 to 40 different jobs in the same field as like a research coordinator and just nothing was happening for me. And so I was like, you know what, I'll just kind of focus more on clinical work because I focused on research a lot and I do want to be a clinician. You know, clinical psych PhD programs don't really favor clinical experience. They just want the research. But I was like, screw that. I want to learn how to be a better clinician. So I ended up finding this program at Colorado State University here in Fort Collins, Colorado called the Masters of Addiction Counseling Psychology Program. Uh, It's a two-year program and trains people to become licensed addiction counselors in Colorado. And you can also take some additional coursework to become a licensed professional counselor as well. So I just graduated from that program. And during that whole time, doing that program and living here in Fort Collins, a lot happened. Uh, I had a baby, which was pretty significant. And she's seven weeks old now. Worked a lot in the psychedelic space. So as you can probably imagine, that ADHD trial set me up pretty well for psychedelic clinical trials. I had been interested in psychedelics, uh, have been interested in psychedelics for the past 10 years. I would say I've been using them on and off for 10 years. And uh, as I mentioned, with my crazy life-changing experience, you know, they've they've helped me. And so I really wanted to do psychedelic research. And I, like many people, you know, felt a lot of this stigma, couldn't even talk about it kind of in research circles, even three, four years ago. But in my time in between the whole like Maryland, Washington, D.C. experience and coming to Colorado, I'd been applying to jobs with MAPS and nothing worked out. But Basically, as soon as I came to Colorado, I uh, met some folks who were principal investigators on the phase three MAPS clinical trials and other uh, MAPS sponsored clinical trials. 
Uh, so fortunately was able to work as a study coordinator on those trials at both the Boulder site and the Fort Collins site. That led to some other opportunities as well. So additionally, I did some other research projects with ketamine. I ran ketamine-assisted therapy groups for frontline healthcare workers and first responders and collected some data on that. I also did my own project on psychedelic use and meaning in life, showing that people that had taken LSD, psilocybin, or MDMA have basically more meaning in their lives, to be short. And that also led to a job as a, a researcher, study coordinator on the MindMed LSD for Anxiety clinical trial. And I also got to serve as a dosing session monitor, so trips that are basically in that trial. I left that trial kind of due to, you could say, political reasons. <laughs> um, and I finished up my master's and just set up my clinical uh, addiction counseling practice here. And so that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm really trying to focus on building out my clinical practice and I'm focusing on cannabis use disorder specifically, which we can talk more about if you want. But essentially that's where I'm at. That's the story in brief. It's There's been a lot of <laughs> twists and turns, but uh, but that's me. Yeah, that's an incredible story. I had no idea, uh, you know, in researching you in prep for the podcast, how much we have in common. I don't. I won't go on a tangent about me or anything like that, but it's a little known fact that the National Guard's Professional Education Center is down there in Little Rock, Arkansas, and then Camp Robinson runs some seer survival school training and sniper courses out of there. I was never a sniper or a seer guy or anything like that, but I've spent a little bit of time out in the Washita's. It's a beautiful part of the country for sure. I know how to pronounce it, even though phonetically it's kind of goofy with the way that it gets spelled, but yeah, it's a beautiful part of the country and you're a climber. I love climbing. It's been a long time, but yeah, what an awesome story you have, man. I'm glad you're willing to share it. Yeah, cool, man. Yeah, we can talk more offline at some point. Yeah, I'd like that. Hey, uh, you mentioned a different podcast where you told your story at length. If people wanted to hear more about some of that story, what was that podcast? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, it's Psilocybin Says is the name of the podcast. It's ran by Eric Osborne, who's the founder of the Sanctuary Church. And I believe the title of the podcast is LSD Research Now Ongoing in More Than 50 Locations or something like that. But I tell my whole story about LSD and I can send you the link there. It's also up on my website at lionheartwellness.net. All my podcast appearances are available there. Perfect. So if you're digging what you're picking up, what Cole's laying down, go check out those other podcast episodes for sure. So you got the opportunity there to tell us a bit about your story. The second question is about transitioning from the past towards the future. And what are your intentions? Yeah. You know, I've been sitting with that question and kind of 
asking myself why I do what I do because I would say I've been offering up some controversial opinions online lately. For those that don't know, my LinkedIn following is about 3,000 people, and you can probably hear in what I've already shared that, you know, I like psychedelics and I've struggled with cannabis addiction. I see, you know, positive psychedelic use and problematic psychedelic use and positive cannabis use and problematic cannabis use. And so, you know, I've been talking a lot about kind of harmful scenarios because I think that they don't get talked about enough. And it kind of forced me to ask myself, you know, like, why do I talk about this stuff as much as I do? And I realized that, you know, for me, it's about reducing human suffering and increasing human flourishing. And so I would say those are my intentions. And to that end, you know, I view myself as highly dedicated to the truth. And <laughs> I view the truth like uh, maybe a sharp knife or something. It's very, it can be very unforgiving. But for me, it's been an ideal that I aspire to very rigorously, and I don't always meet that mark. But, you know, for me, it's very important to to live in alignment with the truth and what I believe my truth to be. So I've been sharing, you know, what my truths are, recognizing that my truth is not always, you know, the truth, capital T's there. But I'm sharing that because I believe that it's important to facilitate dialogue between people who have differing opinions because in the process of that dialogue, you get closer to what the truth actually is. And I recognize that, you know, because my truth isn't the final truth and other people have had different experiences and different truths, that, you know, by having conversations and engaging in dialogue where we're trying to put our emotions to the side and really kind of be dedicated to that ideal of truth, we can get closer to these ideals in my mind of reducing human suffering and increasing human flourishing. Strategic Navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. Yeah, I like those two sides of the coin that you're hitting there between reducing suffering and promoting flourishing. The truth at the heart of your intentions is is pretty important. I like, you know, I've heard people say that the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. And then I like to say that it'll make you piss yourself laughing if it's truly true. Uh, we like trying to figure out ways of bridging memory and intention in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And one of the ways that I've seen act as one of the more powerful ways to link the past to the future and create effective flourishing in now, in the present, is gratefulness. So what are you grateful for? Yeah, well, I've just been thinking I'm I'm grateful you asked that question because for the past several months, my partner and I 
we ask each other what we're grateful for every single night before bed and she can kind of ruminate a lot and have trouble sleeping but it always sets us up really well for just kind of having some positivity before bed and you know it's amazing when you ask yourself that continually the the myriad things that come up when you recognize that there's so much to be grateful for so <laughs> blanket answer but you know really i've been just grateful for everything for my life for having great health you know like i don't suffer with anything. I was diagnosed with a moderate cannabis use disorder and I've been sober for almost two years, but my body is in great health. I'm in great spiritual health, mental health, and that's a huge blessing. And really, you know, most of my family is very healthy. I just got a text that my grandpa's in surgery and he's getting old. But, you know, other than that, I we don't have any kind of family sufferings, terrible things going on. We had a beautiful, just healthy baby and that whole process, even though it had its challenges, just went really well. We had our birth at home and it happened, you know, just beautifully and perfectly and without any complications. A lot of pain <laughs> on my partner's part. She's so strong, but the baby Ellis came out super healthy and has been super healthy. And it, to me, just every single day, that's an immense miracle. And I get to live here in Fort Collins, Colorado, which to me is just a paradise. It's an amazing community. I don't want to oversell it because it's growing too fast, but you know, in my mind, Boulder kind of outgrew itself, but we're an hour north, so I can get to Boulder in an hour. I can get to Denver in an hour where there's a lot of like activities and meetups and stuff going on. But around here, you know, it's not too hard to find parking. There's not a lot of traffic. You can use a public restroom without being shamed for it, needing a key, just kind of these minor things. I mean, the, the cost of living is not the cheapest, but Fort Collins is really an amazing place to live, not to mention an hour to an hour and a half drive. You're in Estes Park and the Rocky Mountains and the Arapaho National Forest. So, you know, I have a beautiful life. My partner's awesome. I have two stepchildren who are just the most amazing children. They're just the most well-adjusted kids that I've ever seen in my life. And it's uh, an 11-year-old boy and a 9-year-old girl. And it's just, yeah, I have an awesome family. I am healthy. My family's healthy. I live in an awesome part of town. So I, yeah, just every day, you know, I'm grateful. I, I feel like you know, maybe there's something around the corner just waiting to happen, which is true. You know, the ball can drop at any point in time. But the more of that that I see, the just the more I recognize just how amazing life is. And I really try to soak it up and appreciate it. Yeah. Congratulations on the sobriety and on the family, the new baby, on landing in the Rockies. That's all beautiful things to be grateful for. I did a 
National Outdoor Leadership School semester in the Rockies like five or six lifetimes ago. And I feel like my internal topography matches <laughs> the Rocky Mountains a little bit better than some of the other places that I've lived. But yeah, you're in a beautiful spot, man. And it's exciting to hear. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So with your whole story and all your intentions and all the things that you're grateful for, what are you creating? Yeah, really my energy has been focused on my private practice. I tend to like, I found out that I have these kind of personality traits where I'm incredibly open-minded and also incredibly conscientious. And so I get a lot of good ideas, but then I'm also a hard worker and I'm extremely detail-oriented. And so oftentimes I'll like get an idea and then I'll think through all the steps and everything that I need to do and it just lands me with like a million ideas and then I get overwhelmed. <laughs> but anyway, mainly right now, I'm just trying to be grounded and really focus on building out my private practice. As mentioned, you know, like yourself, I practice ketamine assisted psychotherapy. I've been trained in that. Uh, it's been just over a year ago now since I got the training and I got to lead some groups. But really, you know, like I just want to help people in a kind of just general outpatient one-on-one setting with cannabis use disorder and that's because I struggled with it for 10 years and you know my parents got divorced when I was 15 years old and that was really hard for me and I didn't know it at the time but I really turned to the cannabis to kind of cope with that and just causing trouble as a teenager and the pattern continued and I really struggled to stop and I needed help and I finally really got serious I mean I've gone back and forth so many times trying to quit and like needing to get sober for a job and then switching to alcohol and then I drink a bunch and Anyway, when I came to Fort Collins to study addiction counseling, I knew it would be really important to get sober to be able to help other people like myself who, you know, struggle with it and need help and to be a model and an example of, you know, I've gone through this and so I can help you too. So yeah, so I've been studying addiction counseling and I realized that there is really a need for treatment of cannabis use disorder specifically. Uh, obviously, it's very highly stigmatized. I get a lot of pushback. People, you know, like you can't get addicted to weed or, you know, obviously it's a lot more jarring seeing the effects of uh, an opiate use disorder or even Adderall addiction or a severe alcohol use disorder. Those things can look a lot more devastating when somebody's, you know, lying on the side of the road with needles in their arm and open sores and and I've seen, you know, a lot of that, and I've heard stories of people waking up drunk or, you know, like drunk driving and killing somebody, and, you know, you don't see a lot of that <laughs> as jarring stuff with cannabis addiction, but that doesn't mean that it's not a real condition and that there's not people out there that need help with it. You know, at one point somebody said they're trying to get pregnant and they need to quit, you know, weed, but they can't stop. And that's, you know, definitely a situation where the cannabis can affect the fetus negatively. And it also can have deleterious effects on the brain. That was kind of one of the things that really, 
you know, sunk in for me. I had a lapse. I was 100 days sober and I had a lapse and I smoked and I was really just looking for connection, but it immediately sent me back into those same addictive cycles. And at the time I was actually putting together a presentation for my class about cannabis use disorder and trying to figure out how I could finish the presentation quick enough so that I could go to the dispensary and get some weed and have time to smoke it, even though like I didn't have time to do that at all. And as I was working on the presentation, I was reading this article in Nature Neuroscience, actually, about cannabis use disorder and how it affects this area of the brain called the orbitofrontal cortex, which is kind of the very bottom of your prefrontal cortex, kind of right behind your eyes. And you can have this kind of bilateral headache, you know, sometimes I get a unilateral headache, so a headache on one side, but I woke up after smoking with this bilateral headache in this exact area of my head where the orbitofrontal cortex is. And then I was reading that when you chronically use cannabis, you know, for like 10 years or more or every day or as a teenager, as you're growing, which I did, you know, this area of the brain, the orbitofrontal cortex actually shrinks, like a decrease in volume and gray matter. And it was really eye-opening for me because I was like, so like I've been shrinking this area of my brain and as an adaptive response, I mean, it does kind of like wire itself better. It has more functional connectivity. So kind of inside that area connectivity, but anyway, but it shrinks. And I was like, wow, like this area of my brain is hurting after smoking. And then, you know, the paper was also saying, it, you know, you can kind of reheal this maladaptive neural circuitry by sustained abstinence, but you need to be off of it. And so that was kind of my tipping point of like, all right, there, there's kind of no going back. And I'd been looking all over for treatment and there wasn't any in the Northern Colorado area. I found like a marijuana anonymous meeting in Denver, but it was like on Zoom and once a month and I didn't want to do that. It went to like six, five or six different AA meetings. And I found out that, you know, I didn't really resonate with those people because my problem was with weed. It wasn't with alcohol. Like if I didn't have weed available, I would turn to alcohol as a substitute. And then I suffered with some of the same complications. But, you know, as I mentioned, people like, you know, waking up like coming to from a blackout, driving, just piss drunk. I had a guy tell me his blood alcohol was like a deadly level, like 0.4 or something. And he was hospitalized for nine days and they tried to put a telehealth monitor in front of him and he thought it was like Star Trek or something. And he was just like freaking out. So yeah, like I get it. Like that's an intense problem, but you know, I didn't really resonate with some of what was offered to me from the AA meetings. So anyway, I found an addiction counselor candidate, which is what I am or will be as soon as Dora reviews my application and sends me the license. Yeah, and I've been going to therapy for almost two years. And like I said, been sober for almost two years. But 
you know, I needed help and there wasn't that specific help available. My therapist has helped me in a lot of ways. She just, you know, doesn't focus on cannabis. So I'm trying to make that my main thing and really doing that. And then other than that, as far as what I'm creating, I'm tossing around a book idea based on some of my writings. My weekly newsletter is The Psychedelic Paradigm Shift, and I talk about how psychedelics are changing the paradigm of consciousness, and I do believe that they are, and I've been considering writing a book based on that idea, but again, it might just be one of my million ideas that I have that's a ton of work, because it's certainly a ton of work, but... Uh, I've been reading Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions to kind of frame paradigm shifts. So I'm just exploring it a little bit more deeply, but I'll continue writing my newsletter every week on Sundays, which has been very well received. Yeah, that's awesome. Structure of Scientific Revolutions is definitely belongs on everybody's required reading list out there. It's always interesting to hear some of the retrospective ironies that people are able to see in, you know, abuse of substances and addiction stories whenever you kind of get clear the cobwebs and the dust off and you look back and you see those ironies of reading an eye-opening journal article about a shrinking orbitofrontal cortex that's involved in, you know, visual control and those sorts of, you know, little ironies that are clues that I'm I'm off the path. Like this, this isn't exactly the way that I want to be living, but you can't see it while you're in the middle of it. But then being able to see it and stitch some of those things together is is really as you said, eye-opening. So I appreciate you sharing that story. Absolutely. Uh, and that brings us around to our fifth and final question. Who are you really? Man, that's a hard one because it's like, do you ever really know yourself? Yeah, you know, I'm a super introspective person. And so I'm always asking myself that question, but I think there's kind of I think that other people can't know each other to their fullest extent and there's always within each and every one of us like a little bit deeper aspect of ourselves. Like our self-knowledge does not always reach down to the very bottom of who we actually are. So I'm limited in what I can really know about who I really am, but I try to do my best to be as engaged in present moment awareness so that I'm kind of naturally manifesting who I am in the moment without pre-imposing these labels and things on who I think I should be. And that's been my kind of struggle in life has been, you know, thinking like I need to be this person, you know, setting a big goal for myself and then kind of taking myself away from who I actually am because I set up, you know, everything that I'm going to do and say and be ahead of time rather than just authentically showing up in the moment and allowing myself to unfold. So, so yeah, based on that, it's, you know, I just try to, yeah, I just try to open myself up to exactly what comes up in the moment and, and see what, 
what pops up and based on that you know I can always kind of look back and say well I guess I like these things but the challenge is just kind of not saying well I like doing this so this is what I'm doing in the future which is kind of to to the point you know we talked about before the recording started of you know I had these questions but I didn't want to you know I didn't want to have the answers all the way because I know that in this kind of natural process of us having this live conversation, you know, maybe more interesting things will come up. But yeah, you know, I would say I know my core values are truth and love. And I try to live through those and embody those as my guides to my life. Uh, I try to live my life according to principles. So by setting up, you know, effective principles for who I am, such as I always strive towards the truth, I eat healthy, I move my body, you know, I maintain a relationship with the divine on my own terms. I, you know, don't abuse, you know, substances that I know are problematic for me things like this, I can have kind of a decision-making matrix for when I'm faced with these problems or scenarios. And I think that living your life according to values and principles gives you a much deeper connection to who you really are because it's not just this kind of surface level you know, I am X, I do Y, or, you know, how you describe yourself professionally when you meet somebody at a cocktail party. But it's like, to me, and I've had this thought and psychedelic experiences that by being dedicated to my own principles and values, I have a much deeper internal sense of self and a much deeper grounding to who I really am and that's been incredibly rewarding and grounding for me I don't know if that's uh, the answer that maybe you were expecting or normally get but trying to challenge myself to you know not have a super clear answer it's an answer that I'm definitely grateful for <laughs> cool do you have any final thoughts for our audience well, I would say, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast. I appreciate being asked these questions because they're not always the kinds of questions that people ask each other, but they're very important ones and they allow me to show, you know, a different and very important side of myself that I don't always get the opportunity to share with the world but that you know I love being able to share with the world so yeah I just appreciate you and this opportunity it's both an honor and a privilege cool man doc out <laughs>